Well, it has been observed by some people that at the end of a person's life, they are seen in different ways. Uh, A preacher tries to see them at their best, it said. A a lawyer usually sees them at their worst, and uh, and a doctor sees them exactly as they are. And I thought as I, I don't know if you caught the humor of all that or not, but very interesting thoughts there. We We all have varying perspectives. And when God used the four gospel writers to, to write down uh, the history of the story of the Lord Jesus' life, we see that each one of them focuses on a, on a different aspect of the life of the Lord Jesus. I think we've shared this with you before, but Matthew focuses on Jesus as the promised Savior. He is the Messiah who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. His focus was mainly the Jewish people. The Gospel of Mark focuses on Jesus as being a servant. His target audience tended to be the Romans. Uh, Luke, the doctor, focused on Jesus' humanity. His, uh, he had called him the Son of Man many times. Uh, and his, his focus audience was basic, or target audience was, was the Greek-speaking people. Uh, the Apostle John, when he wrote his universal Gospel, he focused on the deity of Christ, or that Jesus Christ was God. And you know, one of the basic perspectives of Scripture that we struggle to comprehend, even though it's absolutely biblically true, is that Jesus was both divine, that He was God, and He was totally human at the same time. He wasn't half and half. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God and 100% man. I have preached that for years. I know that if you know Christ as your Savior and you've been taught in the Word, you know that, you believe that. The New Testament is very clear in that teaching. But I'm simply saying that it's hard to wrap your brain around that. How could that be that Jesus Christ could be 100% God and 100% human at the very same time? We understand the blending issues of human DNA, as well as the DNA of animals. Every, every farmer, every rancher practices selective breeding to produce a finished carcass that meets market expectations, whether it's beef or pork or lamb. Some ranchers have worked for decades in their breeding practices to produce a certain type of animal that's going to make the best profit. So, so we understand the, the blending of genetics. And we see our DNA in our children and our grandchildren, for better or for worse. And so, so we, we understand that. But, but the perfect blending of a divine nature and a human nature is a lot more difficult to, to comprehend. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ was God and Jesus Christ was human. He got hungry. He got tired. He felt pain. He had a fully human body, and he was also fully, totally divine. He was God in the flesh. God walking this earth in a human body. Theologians would call him God incarnate, meaning in the flesh. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. And this, this perfect blending of human and divine was absolutely necessary. It is the only way 
that the plan of salvation could be accomplished. In order to die for the sins of human beings as our substitute, Jesus had to be human. In order to meet the demands of God's justice, He had to be one of us. But in order to rise from the dead and defeat the curse of sin, He had to be divine. And as the sinless Holy Savior, our substitute, taking our punishment on the cross, He had to be the God-man, the, the, the perfect blend of human and divine, 100% God, 100% man. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10 that we must believe that Jesus is divine in order to be saved. We have to believe that Jesus is God, that He is Lord and God in order to be saved. And the Apostle John wrote in 2 John that if we reject the humanity of Christ, then we are promoting the spirit of Antichrist. And so Jesus Christ is the God-man. Scripture teaches it. Our salvation demands it. And as we struggle to wrap our brains around that, how that could happen, our, our next passage in the book of Philippians kind of describes a little bit more about God becoming man. Paul had just challenged his Philippian friends to live a sacrificial, unselfish life. He had said he wants Christ to be more clearly seen in him. He's given them a formula for unity that we talked about a little bit last week. Uh, as I said last week, verse 3 and verse 4 in chapter 2, they form one of the greatest statements on relationships that the Holy Spirit ever left us. And if we can practice those two verses, we will experience peace in our personal relationships and peace in our homes and peace in our churches. And, and I paraphrased Paul's formula for unity this way. I said reject selfishness and squash ego and promote humility and focus on others. You know, psychology tells us today, be confident and assert yourself. Materialism tells us today, be selfish and please yourself. Pride says, be, be superior and promote yourself. But Jesus Christ says, be unselfish and humble yourself. So you may ask, when Paul's driving at unity here and talking about unity, what does he mean by unity? We didn't develop that a lot last week, and I want to this week. Because unity in the body of Christ does not mean that everybody agrees on every detail of everything. That's uniformity. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. Uniformity usually means that somebody's been pressured to feel a certain way or they've been pressured to do a certain thing. The word uniformity has it has right in it, you know, the word uniform. When things are uniform, we expect people are going to dress alike, they're going to look alike, they're going to sound alike, they're going to think alike, they're going to act alike. Sounds great for a moment, but it's not healthy and it's not biblical. True, true unity. Spiritual unity cannot be created by outside pressure. We come from different families, we have different habits, we have different backgrounds, we have different education. We're not cookie cutters of each other, nor should we be. That's a good thing that we're not cookie cutters of each other. So, so how do we find unity when we're surrounded by so many differences? Well, we find harmony. 
once you think about that for a moment, harmony does not exist because everybody's the same. Harmony actually exists because everyone's different. Stay with me. I see some of you thinking, well, what are you talking about here, Larry? Okay? Some people think harmony means sameness. When three singers get together and they sing in harmony, they're not singing the same note. If they sing the same note, we call it unison. In, in harmony, they sing three different notes. They sing three notes of a chord. They're all different, but they're beautiful together. I'll show you what I mean. Now that I've already talked about my, my great piano skills, huh? That's unison. But if I go... That's harmony. That's six, that's six or seven different notes. That's, 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 that's harmony. It's all beautiful together. Of course, if Carol's playing, she could... In fact, I had Carol lined out to do this magnificent arpeggio on the piano today. Oh, well, you're stuck with me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Glad I hit the right notes. All right. So, yeah. Okay. It, 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 those, those three notes are, are the same. They're, they're, they're in accord. They're different, but they blend that's what harmony is. And back to our singer analogy. When three singers get together and they sing in harmony, they're not singing the same note, but they are singing the same song. So when Paul has said in our thoughts last week to be like-minded, to be of one accord, to be of one soul, meaning having the same love, he's not saying be a carbon copy of each other. He's not saying live in uniformity. He's saying live in harmony. Blend. Sing the same song. Be on the same page, going the same direction. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon, when he was writing Proverbs, some of you are familiar with the passage in Proverbs 6, where he said there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, there are seven that are an abomination to him. And then he lists those seven things. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to do evil, a false witness who speaks lies. And then the last one in his list, he said, and the person who sows discord among brethren. There is one who creates conflict, one who destroys harmony among brethren, meaning among connected people, as in a family or a local church. And, and, and Solomon says, God, God hates it. God, God hates that. When, when people sow discord among the family of God or among connected people. So Paul's words to the Philippian church are not anything new. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also on the interests of others or for the interests of others. Then Paul reminds us that Jesus Christ was the supreme example of unselfishness for us to follow. And we're just going to look at a few more verses this morning, starting in verse 9. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul says, after he gives this big challenge for unity, this challenge to be of the same mind and the same love and one accord and don't, be, don't have selfish ambition, he says, let this mind or this attitude be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Have the attitude of Jesus Christ. And then he describes what that attitude was. And I want to, I want to give it to you this way. First, I want to think about what Jesus left. And then I want to think about with you the steps that Jesus came down. Because it describes in very, very great detail what Jesus, what model Jesus was giving for us of this incredible sacrificial unselfishness. First of all, Paul says what Jesus left. Let this mind, verse 5, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Think about that phrase, being in the form of God. I don't want to get into big New Testament grammar lessons every week with you. We did a little bit last week. But this is such an important passage, we can't miss the power of it. And we just don't quite see the power of it in English, I don't believe. The word translated being is in a particular verb form that describes a continuing essence or a continuing nature. The word translated form continues that thought. Now, there are two words for form in the Greek New Testament. One is schema, from which we get our English word schematic. All you mechanical guys, you've taken a schematic drawing and you of some usually the electrical system on your vehicle or your tractor or whatever, and you see where all the wires are supposed to go and what's supposed to connect. Okay, the schematic is not the real thing, it's a drawing of it. It's a representation of it. The other word is the word morphe, which means you're looking at the real thing. You know the word metamorphosis when the caterpillar spins himself into a cocoon and then he comes out a butterfly. Okay, he has changed his essence. He has become something else. He has transformed. And this word morph, of course it's right in the middle of metamorphosis. It is the, the, the essence of the real thing. And so Paul says, Jesus Christ when in the form of God, he says, the morphe. He's saying, Jesus Christ was not the schematic of God. He was not just a drawing or a representation of God. He's saying, he was God. He was the very essence of God. He was the real thing. And the verb tense indicates he has always been God, and he will always be God. He was in the form of God. He was eternally the very nature of God, because he is God. Now I want you to look at just a, a couple of quick verses. <clears throat> First of all, look back at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I'm just going to read the first, probably two verses, maybe the third verse, okay? 
John 1 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Now, if you wonder who the Word is, you see in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect expression of who God is. John is using that word to describe Jesus Christ. So he says, in the beginning was the word, was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was with God, and Jesus Christ was God. He was in the the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So if you wonder who the creator is, John 1.3 says it's Jesus Christ. He literally spoke the words that brought this world into existence. The Creator is Jesus Christ. And John says he was with God, and he was God. In the very beginning, he was with God. And so when Paul says he was in the form of God, he's simply reiterating that same truth. Jesus Christ wasn't just the schematic of God. He was the morphe of God. He was the real thing, the actual essence of God himself eternally existing in heaven. Look at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This entire chapter is the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane right before Judas Iscariot came with the soldiers. They arrested Jesus and the process of his trial and, and crucifixion began. So these are the, the, this is the prayer he prayed right before he went to the cross. And look at what Jesus says. He spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Of course, he's going to be crucified. He knows it. He's planned it. He's expecting it. Glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, and that you should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You wonder for a definition of eternal life? It's knowing God forever and ever and ever. Verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And notice verse 5. And now, O Father, Jesus says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Again, Jesus saying again, Father, I was with you before we ever made this world, and I know when I'm done with this day on the cross, I will receive the glory that I used to have with you in heaven before the world began. So when Paul throws that little phrase out there, being in the form of God, he's simply saying, Jesus Christ was eternally the very nature of God because He is God. We won't take time to turn these to read, to read them today, but if you want to look at a couple more, Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.15. Both of those verses say, Jesus was the express image of who God is because He's God. 
Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.15. So, when we answer this question, what did Jesus leave? Paul says, let this mind be in you, who was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that's what he left. He stepped out of all the glories of heaven, all the honor and majesty owed to him because he's God. The highest exalted position in the universe. And he began to go down, step by step, down, down, down to where you and I live. Jesus Christ came down to us. God came down to us because we could not go up to Him. And I think I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, Bible-based Christianity is the only religion on the planet, the only religion on the face of the earth that describes God coming down to us. Every other religion, I don't care what you call it, what brand it is, or what planet, it, or, what, or what continent it's on, or what language they speak, every other religious faith, faith in the world has a system of me doing works to get to God. But in Bible Christianity, God came down to me because I can't go up to Him. I cannot possibly be perfect enough to get to heaven. And God knows it. So He sent His Son down to me because I can't go to Him. And so Paul says, you look around at your service for Christ, you look around at what you are and who you are and what you need to be. He said, let this mind, let this attitude be in you who is in Jesus. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was with God the Father. Jesus stepped out of all the glories of heaven and all the honor and majesty that was owed to him because he's God. And he stepped out of that and, and he took, uh, you could make four or five or six or seven steps. I'm going to give you five steps that Jesus took down. Step one, the next phrase. He says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. The old English word robbery originally meant the thing taken in robbery. Then it came to mean the thing that you try to hang on to. So what that phrase means is Jesus did not regard his position in heaven as something to be held on to. Jesus looked at all the glories of heaven. And he said, I can leave this. And I can go down to that sin-cursed world and hang out with all those rebellious humans and I can do it. I don't have to hang on to all of those things. And you know, when you, when you, when you really meditate on that, that Jesus was not clinging to his equality with God as though he couldn't let go. And when you meditate on what Jesus was willing to leave to come down to us, it is astounding. It is earth shattering. He knew exactly what he was coming to do. He knew exactly what the cross would be like. He knew full well what his purpose was. And he was willing, Paul says. He did not regard his position in heaven something that he had to hang on to. A lot of people not like that in this world. They look at stuff they have and they say, "Man, I, I, I just can't let go. I just can't. I mean, I just have to have this. I just I just can't let go of this." 
I can't let go of this job. I can't let go of this car. I can't let go of this pickup. I can't let go of this person. I can't let go of this child. Etc., etc., etc. Well, Jesus had everything. And he said, I can let go. I don't have to hang on to it. Because I have a job to do. I've got to redeem some miserable, rebellious sinners down there. And this is what I have to do to do it. So Paul says, let that attitude be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He didn't regard his position in heaven something to be held on to. Step two, he emptied himself of all of his privileges. That's what that next phrase means. He made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation. He was still God. That didn't change. But he voluntarily laid aside the privileges of being God in heaven so he could be hungry and tired and hurt and limited by his human body. Jesus laid aside all, the, 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 all those powers that he could have used. And he voluntarily chose to empty himself. He said he made himself of no reputation. And one, you could look at many, many examples of that. But let me just give you a couple of them. What do you think Jesus did when he got hungry? You go, I need food. I'll just make some. Bang. He didn't do that. Remember when he was feeding the 5,000 and he took the five little loaves and the two fish and he just kept, kept breaking it? You know what he's doing? He's literally creating food as he's breaking it off. That's why one little kid's sack lunch fed 5,000 people. Because Jesus is literally creating food. But you know what? When he sat down at Mary and Martha's house, he sat there and waited for dinner to be made. He, he could have just created it. But he didn't do it. The Apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. The soldiers come. Peter, in his impetuous way, whips out his sword and swipes at the guy. I think he was trying to cut his head off. The guy ducked and he's got his ear. Jesus picks up the man's ear, puts it back on his head, heals him. And then he turns to Peter. Remember what he says to Peter? Put your sword away, Peter. I could call 12 legions of angels. A legion in the Roman army was 6,000. I could call 12 legions of angels. He's not saying exactly how many angels there are in heaven. He's saying, Peter, because you, I mean, a Roman legion comes up 6,000 men. They were a terrifying force in the world at that time. And Jesus says, I could call 12 legions of angels. I could call 72,000 angels, Peter, with the snap of a finger, and they could wipe these guys out like nothing. Make food for the vultures. He didn't say that. I'm just adding that. He said, I could call uh, 72,000 angels to deliver me, Peter. But he said, this has to happen. So put your sword away. What was Jesus doing? He was laying aside, he was voluntarily laying aside the powers that he could have used. He chose voluntarily to empty himself. And when you think of all that, Jesus on the cross... As they whip him and as they mock him and as they rip out hunks of his beard and as they slam him to the ground and pound spikes into his wrists and his feet and they hang him up there and mock him 
And Jesus could have gotten himself down just like that. Could have. But he voluntarily chose to lay aside all those exercises of his divine power. That's what Paul said when he says he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of all of his privileges. Step number three, he took the form of a slave. Take the form of a bondservant. That's the word morphe there. Again, the actual essence of being a slave. He did exactly what God the Father told him to do. You see that many places in the gospel. Jesus said, I do what my father tells me to do. I say what my father tells me to say. I am a slave to this mission, to this purpose, to this plan. I have no personal rights. I have nothing that I claim to deserve. I am essentially a slave performing the will of God the Father. I, I, I became a slave. I was God the Son. I was the Son of God. I had all the glories of heaven. And he said, I have taken on the form of a slave. Step number four. Coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. Step number four is Jesus looked like an average human. Now that may not astound you until you think about what Jesus left. When we get to heaven and we visibly see the glory of heaven and the majesty of God, I'm sure we're going to think, man, Jesus left all this and came to this earth to mingle among us and eat our food and live in our houses and, and suffer and be treated like dirt by so many, and he did all this for me? Now see, Jesus was given a human body and he looked like the average Jewish guy in the first century. Middle Ages painters kind of sometimes painted Jesus with a little halo over his head. You know, no, no, it wasn't there. No, nobody saw Jesus coming and say, Hey, there's God in the flesh. Here he comes. Let's go bow down to him. No, he, he, he was highly respected by some people because of his teaching and because of his ministry, but not because he had some stellar appearance. And interestingly, here's the word. Remember I talked about schema and morphe? Okay, being found in appearance as a man, that's the word schema. He wasn't the average human, but he looked like one. He was the God-man, but he looked like the average human being, and he was willing to accept that. Again, when you think about what Jesus left, and then he comes to earth, and he's just going to take on the average appearance of the average person. Nothing stellar or extraordinary about what Jesus actually looked like, regardless of what, the way painters may paint. Just looked like the average guy. He had the appearance of a man. And then step number five, the very bottom. It says he humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death, even crucifixion, even the death of the cross. That was the ultimate point of Jesus' downward descent into this world. It wasn't just to lay aside some of his privileges or endure looking like the average person or submitting to God the Father, even though he was equal with God the Father. Jesus came to die. 
he came to die a horrifying death. As Paul says, even the death of the cross. Why, you may ask? I don't know how much you've ever read or thought about crucifixion, but horrifying, unbelievable, ultimately slow suffocation in the most miserable possible way you can imagine. He didn't just, Jesus didn't come to drink poison or slit his wrist or get shot or get pierced with an arrow or stabbed with a sword. He came to agonize in misery for hours on the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And everyone in Philippi who read this in the first century, they would go, oh, wow, even the death of the, oh, even the, death of the cross, wow. You say, what, what, why, why would Jesus do that? Why did Jesus come to die a horrifying death? Well, I believe God was showing us the horrifying nature of our sin. Jesus had to suffer like he suffered to illustrate to us the nature of our rebellion against God. We tend to take sin so lightly, especially our own. The old-time evangelist Billy Sunday was preaching like maybe a hundred years ago. He used to say in some of his sermons, the reason why sin flourishes in our lives is because we treat it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. Good thought. He was a very fiery, running back and forth across the platform, very fiery, hellfire, brimstone guy, old, old time Billy Sunday. The reason why sin flourishes in our lives is because we treat it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. And I think Jesus Christ, when he died, even the death of the cross, Paul says, he was showing us the horrifying nature of our rebellion against God. And notice that phrase there, he humbled himself. You know, the Bible never says, you can search all over the Bible, the Bible never says, be humble. You can't find one place where that command, be humble. You see, humility mentioned all over the place, but never a command to be humble. However, what the Bible does say, it says here in many places, humble yourself. Not be humble, but humble yourself. Why? Because humility is not a character quality that you develop and then you have now become humble. It is, it is an, an, an act of the will where you choose every day to live verse 3 and verse 4. Where you, where you literally choose every day to, 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 uh, to look out for the interests of other people and not just yourself. You choose every day to do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. That's why you see the command, humble yourself throughout the scripture. Not be humble, because I'm not sure we can really do that in our old sin nature. But humble yourself, make a conscious choice, an act of the will to humble yourself. So Jesus was in the exalted position of majesty as God the Son, with all the glories of heaven surrounding Him, and all the angels of heaven ministering to Him, and all the power of God within Him. And, and He laid it all aside and placed Himself low, even to the point of crucifixion, and He did it for you, and He did it for me. As one poet so clearly stated, 
He paid a debt he didn't owe because we had a debt we couldn't pay. I love Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, verse 18. John chapter 10 is a fantastic chapter, by the way. The whole chapter is marvelous, but I love Jesus' words in verse 18. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down all by myself. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back. That commandment I received from my Father. Jesus is basically saying, you can't kill me until I'm ready to let you. And I'll only stay in that grave as long as I want to. You see, everything Jesus did, he volunteered for. And those beautiful words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5a, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's such a beautiful teaching by the Apostle Paul on Christ and, and what he did on our behalf. But remember, he's telling his Philippian friends and us as well, let this attitude, this mind, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Lord, help me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true and know that all I do for you must need be done for others. Let self be crucified and slain and buried deep and all in vain may efforts be to rise again unless to live for others. And when my work on earth is done and my new life in heaven begun, may I forget any crown I've won while thinking still of others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others so I can live like thee. Let this mind be in you, Paul says, that was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard to die to self. It is so hard to, to live in such a way that we're totally committed to pleasing you, not pleasing me. And yet, Lord Jesus, when we think of all you did on our behalf, the very essence of God, you were God. You had glory with God the Father from the beginning of the world. Yet you left all that behind and came down to this old sin-cursed world. Looked like an average human being and lived like a slave of God the Father and tolerated injustice and hatred and pain and hunger and thirst. And you did all that because we needed to be forgiven. And you were the only way that it would be possible. So Lord, help us as we live our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. May we, Father, be focused on your attitude and what you did for us. Lord, may nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Help us always to be looking out, not just for our own interests, but for others as well. 
Lord, if there is one here today or several here today who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are not absolutely certain that they have been forgiven. I pray, Father, they will make sure today. You are the only way. And you did all of this for us. You had, you paid a debt you did not owe because we had a debt we could not pay. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. May we serve you with all of our being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.